Welcome to Marsha's Plate. This is an interview episode where we talk to friends, family, other community members, and anybody else we want to talk to. <laughs> hey brother, hey brother, hey sister, hey sister, hey sibling, how are you? Hey brother, hey brother, hey sister, hey sister. Hey, what's up, y'all? So I have an amazing show. This is for y'all playing today. Um, this is Pride Month, so I am just thinking about people who I think will be great in having just general conversations about, you know, things that are current, things that are important to us as trans people, and having you hear from people that you might not normally hear it from. And one of those experiences, the Black trans masculine experience. And so I wanted to bring another Black trans masculine voice on the show to talk about, you know, just some shit going on. And so I am bringing Michael David Battle. Hey, y'all. <laughs> so he is a part of the organization Garden of Peace. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about Garden of Peace before we get started in our just chit chat? Sure. Yeah. So Garden of Peace is going on nine years old um, and we're an arts organization, mostly made up of artists and crafters. Um, but we do a, a fair amount of healing justice and social justice work um, through our art. We offer artist residencies and fellowships throughout the year. Um, we offer retreats. Um, we do a, a series of readings and shows and um, range in age from youth all the way to elders. So we try to celebrate young people. Um, and we're really on a mission right now to celebrate elders and have been for the last couple of years. Mm. Tell me, so we, social justice is a normal, I don't want to say normal, but um, is a common terminology that we use. Define healing justice for me. Yeah. So healing justice work is really rooted in a series and a wide variety of healing modalities. Um, but indigenous modalities, um, we've done, we work with healers all over the country, um, but we've done healing nights uh, where we bring together folks who do everything from Reiki to tarot to massage to acupuncture um, to herbology and herbalism um, and really talk about holistic living and what it looks like for us to be whole and for us to really use the modalities of our ancestors um, to continue those traditions, um, but to really reclaim what healing looks like for us and for our people. Mm, okay. I, I wanted that to, I wanted you, because I didn't want that, that to just roll past and people not know what that meant <laughs> while we're yeah. having the conversation. Right. So, so we've been having this crazy thing about motherfucking bonnets. <laughs> and one of the <laughs> things that I saw when um, I saw one of your updates on your Facebook status, and I want to read it because you know, the, the bonnet hole fiasco is an attack on black women. And so for Ashe. me, of course, right? Ashe. So uh, for me to see a black masculine guy chime in and chime in so brilliantly, I wanted to kind of share your quote and share your status about it. And I want to kind of discuss it. 
So you said black folks, there is no level of respectability that will stop anti-blackness. Not a wig, not a relaxer, not a straightening comb, not bread, not braids or locks or either, not a suit or a tie, not a clean cut, not an education, not even a large bank account. There will always be something too black about folks about you. Folks will still spray paint nigger on your home and Netflix will still cancel your special or underpay you for a special. <laughs> and <my blackness laughs> depends on black folks disposing of each other for a myriad of reasons. We owe it to ourselves and each other to challenge the things that we've been taught to do to erase blackness in a greater effort to make ourselves more palatable, palatable for white folks, comfort and tolerance. We are magic. And every day we have to wake up, every day that we wake up is an act of resistance and love. Hashtag bonnets. That is totally what I felt. I felt like, yo, this shit is, you're trying to, you're trying to, cover it with this auntie i love y'all for real and um i mean, i just i just care about how our image and you know the pride and that you're trying to do it in this you're trying to sell us this anti-blackness in a tender auntie older woman way but we mm-hmm. know that older women particularly um particularly people who invest in respect poli- respectability politics that that can be dangerous for us. That can leave a lot of people behind. That can leave people who don't fit a certain class. That can leave out people who don't fit a certain um, socioeconomic status. That Mm -hmm. respectability that she's invested in throws a lot of people away, a lot of people away. And it it illegitimizes what we say when we talk about how it doesn't matter how we look, motherfuckers. Is, if they're fucking racist or if they're anti-black, it is they're gonna do whatever they're gonna do. It don't matter if right. we got a bonnet, we got a straight bone, straight wrap that's that's flowing and 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 cl- quote unquote clean and and got full of body like we on a fucking Pantene commercial. If they right. want to be anti-black and they want to be fucking racist, they're gonna do that. My wife is way more into social media than I am. I, I kind of avoid social media, to be honest. Um, but she, she kind of updates me, you know, she tells me what's going on. So when the bonnet conversation came up, I think she started talking to me about it maybe last week or the week before. And she made a few posts and, you know, um, she, she was just, but she was bothered. She was like really bothered by it. And uh, we were talking about it. And I, I just said, you know what, like, it, I think what's really bothering you is that it's another attempt at erasing blackness and assigning and ascribing certain characteristics to certain things. And the, the reality is that we have this conversation saying black lives matter, all black lives matter. Right. And at the same time, then you're still trying to put a caste system in place or a system of hierarchy in place. And the reality is that it really doesn't matter, you know, what you're wearing. You know, I even brought up, uh, I I consistently hear older black people and I'm around a lot of older black folks and I have a lot of respect for elders, a ton of respect for elders. Um, And it took me a a while to get on board with the baby boomers, but I started to understand that, you know, talking to my parents in particular, my stepfather and my mother started to understand some of the indoctrinating that they went through, especially as young people um, and really just started to think about the desegregation of schools and what that looked like and the breakdown for them. You know, my mom was 11 when she 
when schools got desegregated. My stepfather was a senior in high school. He was 17 years old. And they went from being in all black schools with all black teachers and all black administrators and all black PTA to now suddenly being like washed with, with white folks. And they're also being an intentional, uh, intentional uh, movement for white women, white girls to be trained as educators and to then be in the classroom, but to really put in the, to indoctrinate young black people with the idea that if they acted more white, if they changed their language, if they performed whiteness in a certain way, if they dress better, if they straighten their hair, that they would be treated better. But we see that 60 years later, that's not the case. And so, you know, you know and I, I brought up, you know, the talented 10th. I said, you know, we tried this already. You know, you had W.E.B. DeVault talking about the talented 10th and how these 10% of people were different than the other 90% of people, right? And it, it's just not true. The, the reality is that Blackness is the, the anti-Blackness is the problem, right? Anti-Blackness is going to exist whether you have on pajamas or whether you have on a suit and tie, whether you have locks or whether you have a clean cut. You know, you can look at the hundreds of black people who are killed by police officers every year and you can see that they all look different but the result is the same i'm so glad that you brought up web du bois because if you look at his career of um in in academia and in his writing he actually did a shift and one of the people who really um a shift to a more um uh, not respectable politic around education and academia. Uh, a, a book that I love that kind of depict this is um, by Ibram X. Kendi, um, Stamped, where he he followed W.E.B. Du Bois um, and and his his transition because in the mm-hmm. when he was younger in the beginning of his life there was like you know like they did with a Phyllis Whitley th- there was this um, exotification of of intellect with um black people it was like oh my god this is special this is this is this this thing like oh my god they can write poetry yeah bitch if you made it legal for us to read and made it legal for us to fucking do shit we would be able to do it so it's not this fucking amazing thing that we couldn't be able to do it you motherfuckers was killing us for doing this fucking shit and so and so there was this there was this idea that because the power structure was so different and the the accessibility to things was so different and who had the power to stop us from getting care stop us from getting food stop us from having safe places to live was so rooted in these in in it was so so hectic that following these respectability rules were a life or death situation. So there was a time when, yes, respectable, dressing a certain way, looking a certain way. That's why when Frederick Frederick Douglass did that um, photography, that image consulting kind of thing where he made, um, he took pictures of black people dressed up in the fancy clothes because that in that moment, that actually did something that pushed the culture in a different direction. But we are not in that time in 2021. We are not in a time where we are proving ourselves to white people. We are not in our times where we are proving ourselves to to the upper class, not just white people, because it's fucking black people who are in the upper class that does the same thing. And so people, we we are past the time. And like I said, W.E.B. Du Bois 
shifted in his mindset around this time, around this in, in his own life. But definitely right now in 2021, we are past a time where we believe that a black person's value is rooted in how well they can code switch, how well they can not sag their pants, how how and how not black they can be perceived. That right. is just not true. And we're not doing right. that anymore. And That's I right. think the bonnet conversation is rooted in that. And older people like Monique are not, um, you know, are just are never probably not going to change. So tell me, yeah. how does this, what are some of the things from a black trans masculine perspective? What are some of the things? Now, the bonnet is for women. I know sagging is something that you know we are, <laughs> that's kind of out of style really even not just on um on a um, cultural level but sagging was one like in the 90s what are some of the things now that you see in the black masculine um expression that has a lot of um backlash or a lot of um um a lot of people talking about whether it's respectable or not respectable. I think that gender gender expression is something that we see amongst trans people. Where it's not, you're, are you trans enough, right? Um, and once it, 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 the it's interesting because in Black trans spaces, Black trans masculine spaces, what I have found is that there is really there's a lot of people who don't feel trans enough um who are being who really it's misogyny that's really what it is i mean it's just misogyny uh explain it a little more what i have found in my experience i i've been in trans spaces now for about 13 years um what i have found is especially with other black trans men and trans masculine folks when we're having conversation um I, I i'll point to something more recent that happened in the last few months i was having a conversation with three other black trans men and uh, we were talking it was actually the day before someone's surgery and um their top surgery and we were you know celebrating that and um the conversation came up about folks who identify as genderqueer and gender nonconforming. And, um, you know, I wasn't, wasn't really uh, chiming in on the conversation. I was listening at that point, but I heard somebody say, well, you know, I'm not going to call you, I'm not going to call you he, if you're not on testosterone. And I thought to myself, wait, what? Like, what do you mean? Like, you weren't always on testosterone, were you? You know, like, the week before that, you took your first shot, you wasn't a he yet. That's right. I'm like, like, so, like, is that where we're at? That's this is the conversation that we're having right now. Is like black tra trans masculine folks in this space. Like now we're like literally we're arguing. Now me and him are arguing and going back and forth. And I said, you know, he said, well, people didn't people didn't do that for me. People didn't respect. And I said, so that's called internalized transphobia. That's, and so now you're internalizing transphobia and misogyny. And, um, and, and even in the last week, I, I had a post that, um, had a, a picture that got pretty, got a lot of likes, got a lot of shares. My family and I dressed up for black Fay day and another black trans man said that, you know, he's not looking to, uh, recruit the type of people who like me, you know, the type of guys he's looking for would never dress up for Black Fay Day. They would never do that. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, me and my son were actually then our photos were taken and put into a collage as the top 10 black men for Black Fay Day on Instagram. So, it, you know, it wasn't that 
there was nothing feminine about what we did. And even if it is, you know, even if we were performing femininity in some ways or, you know, it doesn't make me less of a man, you know, I I don't, you know, there's a, there's a lot of insecurities that I think men in general have, and that's across the spectrum. That's cis, trans, you know, men have these insecurities because of misogyny and it is up to men to make the decisions to to just not care about what anybody else has to say about your manhood. You know, it doesn't, it, it, it just, that that's what I see. I see that there is just this competition of how hyper masculine can I be? How alpha male can I be? And for me, you know, I grew up with a very strict grandfather and he said that a man protects and provides. That's it. There was no other qualifications for that. And I protect my family. I provide for my family. That's man enough for me. <laughs> uh, I, I heard a conversation. I was listening in preparing for our conversation. I was listening to um, a discussion that was kind of sharing the nuances of what you just said as far as not being trans enough. And then on the flip side, while that is the more toxic one, there is a flip side that there's a conversation um, that says that we are too binary. Like uh, you're not trans enough, like you're not performing your gender in this perfect masculine way. But also there's this, you're not queer enough. Like you're, you're, <laughs> you're, um, yeah. You know, you're, you, you, and these are not going to be the same type of people. Usually it's like right. a non-binary person was like, oh, you're, you're, you're living up to those male standards. And there's also people who like, but I like this. I may not be as strict and silly and arbitrary as somebody who's saying you not, um, you're not a woman if you're not on estrogen or, um, you're not a woman if you, do, if you don't have breasts yet, all these things, cause right. those are arbitrary things that are silly, but right. I like where I am. I like the, I like being binary. I like being this person. And then there's sometimes people who would be like, mm, we're supposed to be dismantling the binary and you're not doing <laughs> it enough. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, yes. Now, of course, binary people are going to be the privileged one on that. So I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not discussing in a sense of, um, whoa, it's me. I'm a binary trans person. But what I'm saying is that both of these situations are actually for me, too extreme like if you are trying to trying to police how trans somebody is or how um binary somebody is or non-binary somebody is i think both of those things are a problem i think the point of us um well my point i want to say everybody's point i see the point of us doing us and coming out of those boxes is that we are being an example to allow other people to say hey if I want to be, and I want to present this particular way, then that is what it is. And I can do this and however makes me feel comfortable, whatever makes me feel affirmed, that is that is not impeding on somebody else's identity, impeding on somebody else's agency. I think it's okay for me to be this. And I think that's where we all should be, um, you know, striving for. We owe it to ourselves to investigate, to dissect, to break down the things that we have been told, especially as trans people, the things that we've been told to hate about ourselves. 
else. You know, I, I remember when I when I started transitioning physically, and um, I had a lot of guy friends. Uh, I played softball my whole life, and I was playing travel softball on a men's team. And um, one of my teammates, he was, I mean, wasn't coming from a malicious place. He was coming from a, a place of safety and concern. He was like, you know, I really, I noticed on your Facebook page, you know, you still got a lot of things like you're the music artist you listen to. It's like a lot of women on there, and, you know, and I just, you know, I, I'm concerned about some of the ways that you present and express yourself. I don't want you to like get hurt, you know? Um, and, and I remember him even just saying things like, maybe you shouldn't say you play softball. Maybe you should say baseball, right? Like, because I just don't want people to ask questions. And so I remember for a little bit, I tried to do that. You know, I was like, I was so consciously aware that, man, if I say softball, somebody might question what my gender is. And so I'm going to say baseball. And I, I recognized that for me, it just didn't feel authentic. It didn't feel authentic to me. It didn't feel genuine. And I couldn't really be myself. You know, I even said to you, I said, when I get nervous, I get a little uptight. I get dry, you know, I, I'm not making jokes because that, and I default to that. I default back to, I have to, I have to perform in this way. And I just, I've gotten so comfortable with myself. And I think that when I'm in black trans masculine spaces, that's what the other guys say to me too. They're like, you know, like I, I would never question your gender, even though you do things, you know, you present a certain way, you might cross your legs a certain way. You know, I might start doing yoga in the middle of something, you know, like, it, but it just, it doesn't it doesn't bother me to that you know i'm doing something that's feminine um because i know who i am i'm very comfortable with who i am and i think that we all have to get to that place you know it's not about how much tea i'm on how long i've been transitioning whether my birth certificate has changed my birth certificate just got changed last year <laughs> like, just got changed you know it doesn't it doesn't make a difference to me I think we just, we, we, we owe it to ourselves. We really do to break those things down, to break down being more palatable for anybody, for anybody. And, you know, when it's safety, that, that makes sense. But if we're not talking about safety, you're talking about loving relationships. You're talking about your friends. You're talking about your family. You're talking, I can't have my life set up that way. That's too stressful. I am, there is no way I'm going to be in no damn airport and see a group of black women and even worrying about what they got on their head and looking at them in any kind of judgment kind of way. I'm going to feel safety in seeing them there because I know I'm at this motherfucking airport where these motherfuckers could be. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trans, so I might, I might be worried about is this scanner gonna pick up <laughs> no, <laughs> what it was. I might be worried about that, but <laughs> and yes. how they gonna frisk me down and do all that kind of stuff. So that might be what's taking my mind. But I'm definitely not looking at the end. I'm not gonna be in the airport looking at bonnets and choosing to turn my nose up or. Uh, and look at them and say, oh, they're making the whole black community look bad. That is not <laughs> what kind of politics do you got where right. there's too many fucking Karens running around the airport for me to look at and judge than me look at the group of black girls with the bonnets. I'm sorry. Yes. That's, just, that's just not what I'm going to be doing. Oh my God, I want to thank all of our new patrons this week. Thank you.
you, thank you, thank you. Yay, 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 yay. So not only are you helping to sustain this particular podcast, you know, I also donate to other podcasts. I donate to other organizations. I have my finger on the post of the community and I know a lot of grassroots organizations that are doing great work out here so you're not only helping to sustain us you're helping to sustain other people in a community because I put my money where my mouth is you know that's just the kind of bitch I am community is fuck <laughs> so thank you I really really appreciate you and if you have not become a patron why have you not? You can donate as low as a dollar a month. It doesn't matter. Anything helps. Please. Do I have to play Sarah McLaughlin and show you puppies? Like, what do I have to do? Do I have to do resort to what the white people do to get you to give them money? <laughs> All righty. Anyway, thank y'all. And the Patreon and PayPal link is at the bottom. Back to the show. So yeah. early in transition, because this goes this question goes along with um, this conversation. It flows right into it. I found having an authentic conversation, kind of to myself or to other people, difficult um, about the duality and femininity, the duality of femininity and masculinity within myself, because I was so busy trying to get people to see who I was as a woman, there was, as I get older, I was, I was always trying to prove I'm a woman, I'm a woman. And I, I didn't want to do um, things that even if it was like shit that I like, like video games or things that I, in my mind, I associated with masculinity, um, working out, even though that's healthy for you, any, anything that, um, that I deemed as masculine, I didn't want to do that. Because I was I was so invested in I want to give you whatever it is that womanhood was to me. And so and so there was this reckoning that happened as I got older and um and I had less fucks to give <laughs> where I exploit thing explored things that like push that explore things that it, that I pushed away to prove my womanhood and then explore things that um, I hyper is hyperbolized a word. I know hyperbole is, but think about hyperbole. We're going to accept it. We go, we're going to accept it. it. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck the English language. So right. <laughs> I, I, and, and um, you know, and examine and explore things that I hyperbolize, the things that I made very extra because mm -hmm. I was trying to prove my womanhood. So, mm -hmm. Can you talk about your relationship with masculinity and femininity and how you navigated that throughout transition, even pre-transition? Like, how did you navigate balancing femininity and masculinity and coming to grips with this politic that you have now? What was, what was some of the pitfalls? What Explain that to me from your perspective. I hyper-masculinized. I thought that was the way to do it, you know, um, as I came out, well... Let me go back a little bit. I came out in high school as bisexual to my mom. And um, I thought that was going to be easier. Like, to me, it was like, well, if I say bisexual, it's like a halfway. You know what I mean? Like, my 15-year-old my mind, that made sense. Like, she she could halfway accept that, you know? Uh, but my mom was having it's, no parts it's of It's like me so. when, I was, when, I was lying, when I was lying to the boy saying I was the hermaphrodite. 
You know what I'm saying? Like we we go through things, okay? Like we we go, we go through things, and you know, as a as a as and I went to college when I was 17. I met somebody who was a trans man for the first time. Um, and to be honest, I was I was just not there. I came from a very Christian family. Um, my mom grew up in the South. My grandfather is a founding reverend for the Church of Christ Holiness USA. Uh, my mom didn't wear pants until she was 25. Like, you know, um, she cut her hair when she was 28 and that was still a problem. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I grew up with these very strict ideas of what it was to be a man and to be a woman. We didn't even really talk about gender. It was like, man, woman, boy, girl, this is what you do. And I was all, I was, my, my grandmother identified me as a tomboy when I was real small. Um, and that was acceptable until I was about 16. Um, and I remember I was a senior in high school. I was 16 years old and my mom had a conversation with me about my gender presentation. And she said, you know, it, you can be whatever you want to be, but you still a woman. And so, you know, you, the collared shirts and the, the baggy pants and all you got, and she got rid of my clothes and, um, she actually, she bought me all this feminine stuff, floral shirts and pink and purple. And I was mortified. Like I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to go nowhere. I tried to wear my softball uniform every day, you know, like. It was terrible. So I went to college. I was like, okay, I'm free. And I went to an all-women's college. Um, it had its own issues with racism. We don't even got to get into that. But as far as gender, because I was meeting so many people who were expressing differently, it gave me a lot of permission. And um, so I cut my hair. That was the first thing I did. I cut my hair off, buzzed my hair off, um, showed up to soccer practice like, hey, y'all. And they were like, oh, shit. (laughs) Uh, But I started to really just I didn't want I wanted it to be very clear that I was at least visibly queer. And so I was always in oversized clothes, started wearing men's clothes. Um, I didn't come out as trans until I was a senior in college. Um, And at that time, I thought, well, I could just be genderqueer. I could just be, you know, in between. I don't have to have surgery. I don't have to do hormones. I don't have to change my name even. Um, But that didn't last very long because I had had already acknowledged to myself who I was. Um, And I knew, you know, even as a child, I remember like staring in the mirror and looking at myself and I I would look at myself so long, like just try to see myself as as a man, you know, what would I look like with no hair? What would I look like with, you know, the jawline and, and I started, like, as soon as I said I was trans to my therapist, it was raps. Like, I had to, I had to go through it. Um, but I, my, my solution for a long time was just to be as masculine as possible. I wore suits and ties all the time. I don't know if you remember when you met me down in North Carolina, suit and tie every day. I, I didn't know that was your aesthetic. I thought that that was just um, <laughs> because we were at Bishop Rawls' event, <laughs> and you know, yeah. <laughs> that's what it was going on. That was a yes. churchy ass event, and true. that's what it was. <laughs> that's true too. I was, I was definitely, I was in suit and tie every day. Summertime didn't matter. I was sweating bullets, but to me, everything else, it. 
I would feel like, oh, people are looking at me or, you know, is this cut right or is it fit on me right? Um, even after T, but, you know, um, it, it wasn't top surgery and T testosterone. That's not what made me feel like a man. What really made me feel like a man was when I stopped caring. It was literally the first day that I said, I do not want to wear this suit right now. Like it's hot. I don't want to wear this. And uh, I forced myself to wear something else. And I started to just slowly get back into myself. You know, I grew my hair back out. I have the same hairstyle that I had when I was in my early 20s. Um, and I cut my hair when I transitioned because I thought, well, I don't want to have long hair. I don't want to, you know, I didn't want people to be confused. Um, but I started having real conversations with people, too. Um, I just told you I tried to switch the type of sports that I played in the past. And that it, beca it was because it didn't feel authentic. Um, I started having conversations with people about feeling inauthentic. <laughs> like I started t talking to my friends about like, you know, I know I'm doing this because I don't want people to question, but it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right for me to say, you know, I was a boy. I wasn't a boy. I was a girl. I was raised a girl. You know, like I played girls softball. I was in the girls' locker room. I I had teammates that cried on the bus with me because they didn't want to sit next to me after I came out. You know, and to to not to not say that, to not be authentic about that, it just erased my whole life. I, I can't do that. I can't act like I didn't exist. You know, <laughs> and I didn't want to. I didn't want to keep making stuff up. You know, I didn't want to be switching my voice and making my voice sound more baritone than it really is. Like my voice is what it is. I'm from Pittsburgh. It's only 8% black. So I'm only going to sound, but so, you know, I'm only going to sound the way I sound. Um, but that's, you know, I, I think that's just about being authentic and being genuine and having real relationships, like having people who really want to see the real you. They don't want no fake version of you. They don't want you to lie about who you've been and, you know, I'm grateful for those people in my life. Prior to, you know, prior to you really just acknowledging your transness, you talked about being visibly queer and how that meant something in that space, in that moment. Um, and I know, I remember a time when, you know, I wanted you to know that I was proud, because this is pride, <laughs> that I was proud to be a queer, whatever I was, a queer something. This is even before the first hormone, before any of that. I wanted you to know what was going on with me. Now, where we are now, I see you, I see your visual, you see my visual. Sometimes right. when we're navigating the world, because we are navigating the world in such a kind of binary way, that visibly queerness is not as visible to people and particularly you when it can be particularly dangerous in certain yeah. situations when people are perceiving you as a stereotypical black man and so how do you navigate that how do you what do you think about that what how are you experiencing losing that kind of visibly queer that queer visibility and how you expressing yourself now? Why is it not? Why was it important then and not important now? It was really important to me then because I didn't know myself. And I was trying to put on rainbow flags and wear the baggy clothes and wear men's clothes and make sure I have a close cut because I wanted people to know I'm different. You know, I don't look at me and think that I'm just, you know, everybody else. Um, now, 
I think I, I still express myself, you know, like my friends will joke because I wear joggers and I, some of my friends say I look like a soccer mom, you know, <laughs> like I'll wear joggers and the, the shirt with the Columbia vest and, you know, like I just, I'm, I'm very comfortable. Like now I could, I'll throw on one of my wife's pair of leggings, you know, like is <laughs> I'm that comfortable, uh, you know, so it's, but I think now my me me being for me i think the most visible part of me is my blackness now back then i think in a way i was even going to an all-white school pretty much um going to an all-women's college it was i was in a white neighborhood it was actually dangerous for me to be as like boisterous about being black um and it was it made it safer for me to be queer because it was a very queer area um and i think that had a little bit to do with it but also i was a teenager wait 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 don't the whole, you gotta be quiet you gotta say that real low because the whole tips if you let the whole tips hear you say that it was safer <laughs> for you to be queer then we can you know that's gonna give them that's gonna legitimize their foolishness you can't you can't say that real loud even though i it's understand true. what you're saying because when i when the cops when i was younger and the cops would stop me i would make sure they knew <laughs> <laughs> that I was queer because it just made them a little bit less aggressive as a just queer a man than a regular black man. And Absolutely. so I know that there's that is a reality, but we can't let the whole tips hear you say that. We got to keep that sure. on the low. It's true, it's true, it's true, right? When I was in college, I lived only a couple blocks away from like the, the gay district, right? It's the, the strip um, on Ellsworth Avenue. And so I used to go down there and being black and straight down there, was it was not as safe as me being a black queer person you know everybody knew me um i knew the bar owners you know i knew everybody who was around that area um now it's actually interesting because because of my presentation when i go into those type of spaces people do not look at me the same <laughs> at all and i am seen as a threat you know i had to get i had to like really understand that um it took me a minute but i i lived in uh, i lived in a, another white neighborhood when i moved back to pittsburgh in 2012 and um i was working across town so i used to catch the bus and sometimes i would bike sometimes i would take this the train um and i remember getting off the train one night walking down the street and there was a white woman walking toward me it wasn't that late it was like 8 30 9 o'clock and when she saw me she like literally froze and crossed the street and so I started looking around thinking like, oh, something must be coming, <laughs> like you know, and I'm thinking there must be something coming toward us that I need to watch out for, too. But I could see like I looked around and I said, oh, she's she's running from me, you know, like, oh, my. You know, and I was I was so taken aback. Um, but it's interesting because people tell me on a regular basis, you know, um, I'm only five, seven and a half. My kids say five eight on a good day. Um, I'm not that tall, you know, but people still will describe me as a big black man. Mm. And you know, and some and, and they'll some people have told me that. Like they say, Oh yeah, I was telling them to look for the big black man. And I look around like big. Who's big? Like, you know, it but it is the blackness people do, they just is a synonym with scary with big with you know threatening with violent um you know and i i have i'm not 
comfortable with it. I am accustomed to it because I understand it now. I've been transitioning. I started transitioning physically in 2011. So it's been 10 years. So I'm, I'm accustomed to it, you know, um, but it was a, it was a real, it was a real struggle for a minute. Like, because I'm just not like that. I, you know, I meditate for probably 50% of my day. Um, I'm in a very different headspace. So a lot of times when I'm driving, I'm listening to meditation music, I'm zoning. So when I get confronted with that type of energy, um, like the way the cops interact with me now is crazy. It's crazy. Like my wife had a situation where she got accosted by somebody. Somebody threatened to kill her. I wasn't even there. I showed up 15 minutes later to check on her with the cops there. And the cop told me to get away because I was threatening him. And I was like, I didn't even say nothing. <laughs> like, I'm just standing here, just trying to like make sure that she feels comfortable because I know that, you know, her interacting with the cops is not a comfortable situation. Um, but the it's it when cops interact with me, is it's off the top aggressive. There's never a like, how can I help you? What can I, you know, what can I do? It's like, what did you do, you know, or telling me what I did? And I'm like, hold up. I didn't do nothing, I, you know. Let me back up a little bit. So we just were joking about, um, you know, the perspective of being um, um, being a Black masculine person, being Black, being less, um, and being queer, queer being less um, dangerous. We... we we said it jovially, but we and we're ex, we're explaining situations where this can th- that this can be true. But we also know that in different circumstances, you, it can be more dangerous for you to be queer. And so, oh, I want any, anybody who is listening, not to take our um, us being lighthearted about it, as we're saying that black men are. Um, uh, are more uh, are less privileged or anything like that. We know in certain circumstances, black men are seen as a threat and a danger. Absolutely, particularly when we're engaging with police. So yes, we know we know that. And so, but understand that just because you are a man, understand that there's a another kind of oppression that happens when we engage with police because that queerness and it's p- particularly if you are female bodied or femme. Th- Although you are more at danger of being murdered, we are more at danger at being um, accosted and sexually assaulted and 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 objectified in that kind of way and groped and touched and sexualized when we are engaged with police. So it's just different. It's not that we're it's more or less or this some type of um, uh, oppression Olympics. This is just it's just different. And what, what, what we want you to understand sometimes is that when you are selling this idea that you are more oppressed, you're actually um, illegitimizing our struggle and our narrative. One of the things that I have learned in watching cops and how they engage, particularly with masculine um, Black people, um, black not just masculine, I want to say all of us, um, when it comes to Black people, they it is about controlling us. Keep your hands on the steering wheel. Get out the car. Why the fuck are you looking at me like that? Don't buck up on me like that. And it's it's a it's a anger. It's a control. It's a, a a disgusting display of authority. But when they are engaging with white people, it's about um, the law. You know, um, you ran that light. You know, you're not supposed to run that light. And you know, you ain't got no tail light here, sir. Like, why? Well, I'm just gonna have to give you a ticket. And, um, 
you know, you, you made a left turn over there and you weren't supposed to make a left turn. You know, this the law is you can't make the left turn. It's about enforcing the law and not enforcing their motherfucking control and their power over us. Right. When it comes to black people, it's about enforcing the, um, the control. So I want, uh, so I want to make sure that is a very, very distinct difference. And so it doesn't matter anytime we deviate, it don't matter if we have our bonnets, it don't matter if we have our do rags, it don't matter if we sagging, no matter what, if anytime we deviate or don't perform that submission in a perfect way, don't perform that, um, you know, however we're supposed to engage in a perfect way, it can end up with us losing um, our lives. And so I want yes. to clear that up. Yes. I want to switch gears a little bit. <laughs> this is a quote that I saw on um, Twitter, and I wanted to kind of explore it from a trans masculine perspective. Um, going in on Black trans masculinity in the way that y'all do is just another form of massage noir. Y'all hide it behind. They uphold in toxic masculinity. But it's really because y'all still are seeing us as Black women. And y'all just want to wear us out. Because you are massage noirs. I've seen this conversation um, multiple times come from trans masculine people. And I want to know your opinion. I see it show up in conversation. Um and I recognize it, and I'm not really, I'm not 100% for sure because I'm not a trans masculine person, but as a person who has empathy and look at nuances of um, um, oppression and as Patricia Hill Collins would say, the matrix of domination, I see it show up in conversation I hear from women, cis or trans, who date trans, black trans men. It's like this real turf-like sensibility around their beliefs in who and what y'all do and how y'all act, um, you know how they are. And the sub, they'll say like, oh, you know how they are. And the subtext, even though they don't say it, is because he used to be a black woman. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I hear it. They won't say that because they know that's politically incorrect, particularly people who date y'all. Mm -hmm. And so... Can you, ex if you agree with this, can you tell me, tell me if you do or if you don't agree. Tell me if you do or if you don't agree with it. Um, how does massage noir show up against you as a masculine assigned female at birth person? And how would that surprise people who may be, you know, familiar with massage noir in a certain way? How does it show up for you? And how have you seen it, if that's true? I guess I'll give two examples. Um, one, uh, about six years ago, my wife and I uh, orchestrated, led a, a counter pride movement in Pittsburgh called Roots Pride to shut down the Pittsburgh Pride and to ensure that Iggy Azalea wasn't going to be the headliner at Pride that year. Um, so we did that. It was very successful. The community rallied with us. Um, but one of the one of the things that happened while that was going on was Pittsburgh Black Pride, which has been around. It's the oldest standing, and this is very this is still true to this day. The longest standing uh, Pride movement in Pittsburgh, um, and but prior to 2015 and even still to some respects they had no events for trans people um i'll give you an example they had a pageant and there was a mr and a miss um in 
trans men, trans women, no trans people were allowed to be a part of that event at all. Um, you could buy tickets and go to the event, but you could not participate as a contestant. Um, and there were two contestants who won prior to their transition. When they transitioned and they went to the director and said, you know, hey, this is my name now, this is my pronoun now, they continued to misgender them, continued to use their their birth name. So that was something that had came up multiple times. And I addressed the director like, hey, what's going on? Because these two individuals have now contacted me and I have supported your organization and supported your group for a long time. Why? Like what, you know, but as I delve deeper into the event, now you're having a basketball tournament that only says women can participate in. Participate in. You're having a cookout that is the only event that you have that anybody can come to, but it is primarily says women. And so, um, you know, when we did Roots Pride, we reached out to them and we said, hey, we're going to be doing this, but we would love for you all to participate and really, you know, collaborate with us. They did not want to do that. They actually then went to the media and slandered me in the media. The director <laughs> said, and I quote that I behaved like a woman who was PMSing, right? So this is the director, right? And you have never hosted anything for trans people. You're mad because we have finally created something that's inclusive of all of us. And instead of celebrating that, you come and are transphobic to me to the newspaper, something that is in print and will be in print forever, right? Um, and so, and other people, nobody addressed it. The The Courier, the Pittsburgh Courier newspaper printed it like it was fine. They didn't even come to me for a comment, didn't, didn't ask me anything. I had to get sent that article online because somebody was like, what the, like, <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, the, not only did the director say it, now you have the newspaper who is culpable as well because they didn't even come to me. You had no respect for me as a person to even come and get a comment from me, to get, even get a response, um, to let me know that there was going to be something like this printed. So um, that's one instance. And, you know, when we had conversation about it in community, there were a lot of people who thought that it was just fine. Um, they felt like, you know, I could have responded if I wanted to, but they didn't see the issue with it at all. Um, hence, I left Pittsburgh three years ago. Uh, <laughs> then another instance that, um, that I'll give is uh, a lot of trans men are caretakers and their family. And people don't realize that. Um, like, I know I, I'm a caretaker in my family. I helped a, I'm a help the i'm a co-power of attorney for an elder in my family um and a lot of us because we are raised as girls right um there is you know we know the invisible the invisibility of labor for black women and girls we know what that looks like the erasure of labor the erasure of emotional energy and so that doesn't really change when you transition you know and at least not in my family that's just my experience you know um i still do a bulk of emotional labor in my family and a lot of it is erased um a lot of it is not recognized and i you know when i talk to other black trans men a lot of them are caretaking for elders especially in their family um and there is not really you know uh, a, not a recognition of like 
this is emotional trauma that you've experienced things, even the way that people engage with you around your emotionality um, or around you having just like normal feelings. It's like, you know, I, I want you to perform and act like a, a man, right? Um, but at the same time, I am going to still engage with you the way that I would have engaged with you as a Black woman. How do you balance some combating those people who might be attacking you from a position of their massage noir or their trans misogyny um, and hold toxic trans men accountable when they are investing in patriarchy and massage noir. How do you balance that? It's vital. I, so I just told you, we went on the trip yesterday to go see Charlie. Um, and that was a huge topic of conversation because we actually had an incident here a few months ago um, where we were at an event. Um, it was a birthday party and there was a trans man who I had never met and most of the people in the room did not know him, um, but he was a friend of the host. So he was being very violent to a trans woman who was in the space. And I had just walked in and I'm like, what is going on? You know, and other people were sitting there and they were kind of like stuck, just like, what the hell are we supposed to do right now? Um, and what we wound up talking about yesterday was one of the guys that was, th that was there, he said, I felt like it was like a bystander effect. Like, honestly, I didn't know how to respond. And I, I had just came in, but I said something. You know, because this black trans woman said over and over again, stop touching me, stop touching me. And, you know, other people were like acting like they were flirting and it had been going back and forth. But I said, once she said, stop touching me, that should have been the end of that. They, like, there's just no, there's no, nothing else to be said. It takes courage. It takes bravery. It's the same thing for cis men. You know, cis men do the same exact things. They have situations come up. And I know this because I'm surrounded by cis men. I'm surrounded by my family, my friends, you know, and other men, cis and trans, tell me that they get in situations where they feel uncomfortable, but they don't know how to respond. And most of it is that they're afraid. And they don't want to say that they're afraid. But the reality is that we all, we all, every person has to have the courage to say something when you see something wrong. You know, I there was no way that I could sit in that party. I couldn't do it. Like I just, I couldn't. When I walked in and I heard what I heard and I saw what I was seeing, I'm looking around, I'm thinking, okay, ain't nobody else said nothing. I don't understand, you know, and maybe me and him's about to fight. And we might have. You know, I don't know. We might fight. Maybe he could beat me up. I don't know. You know what I mean? But I'm still going to say something. I'm still going to address it. And it is hard. It's hard to do sometimes. But, you know, I just didn't grow up that way. I grew up believing that if I if I felt a way, I had to say something. And I, my life experience shows me that most people don't. Most people don't say anything. So if I don't say something, nobody's going to say nothing. Um, and as soon as I said something, you know, my wife said something. Then somebody else said something. And it was like, okay, you know, it's not just me. You know, I know my wife's going to say something, but I never want to put her in a position where she has to step up and say something before I do. That's that's just, a, that's not going to happen. Um, and I, I mean, men have to check men, period men have to check each other. Um, I personally, I, I have 
in the last few years since moving here have gotten more trans men friends. But the truth is, even in the conversation we had last night or yesterday on the road trip, I told them, I said, I up until now, I really haven't had that many trans men friends because we'll become friends. And then I see that you're repeating the same toxic stuff that I've had from cis men my whole life. You know, I grew up with a, a father who abuses alcohol. I grew up with a father who abused my mother, who abused me. And I just, I have witnessed too many men be abusive and violent in my life. Um, I'm done with it. <laughs> like I'm done with it. And um, so I, trans men, you know, again, we all owe it to ourselves to address the things that we've been indoctrinated with, the things that we've been told to do and, and to say, you know, um, we owe it to ourselves to challenge those things. I have to challenge myself. You know, when I get upset with my wife, I have to challenge myself to not yell, to not go off, to not break things, to, you know, all the things that I was told that were acceptable as a child. I know they're not acceptable. They're just not. Like, I'm not going to call her outside of her name. It's never happened. It's not going to happen. You know, and if I do, I expect my trans brothers, my cis brothers, I expect them to check me. I do. And I would, I, I would not want to be surrounded by people who are unwilling to check me. It's just, it, no, nobody should go. Nobody should go. <laughs> should just be that unrestricted. No, you got to have people who can check you in your life. Account, you know, I don't know who said it, but accountability is a gift. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and even like allyship, allyship is a constant thing that you do all the time. If you, you can't be so woke that you can't be checked or you can't make a mistake. And so as an ally, I'm expecting, if you need to be held accountable, I'm expecting you to be open to that accountability. If you are holding privilege or you holding power in a certain particular situation, then you are the person who, um, has to be open to that kind of checking how, open to that kind of accountability and be called to the mat and be and be called in and be open to oh I made a mistake and even if it, there's some nuances to that mistake sometimes you know people's trauma is gonna um have them hold you accountable <laughs> and it may not be um it may not be a, as a comfortable fit as you would want but it might still fit and so right. after you have to be like okay um you know, let me just sit back and listen and do what I need to do to, to if this happens again, to act, act accordingly. This month is Pride Month, and we know how important trans people have been in the narrative of Pride prior to erasure. <laughs> Clearly what's happening in Pittsburgh. <laughs> so yes. this is Pride Month. And with LGBT kids being on attack, they are literally attacking um, legislatively <laughs> when it comes to these bills and this crazy ass shit about trans kids. And with, you know, maybe new transitioners or early transitioners or people who are scared and thinking about transition, um, we know that family support is one of the most important things of course um not necessarily but family but just a community of people um that kind of support having and it doesn't need to be multiple people but one person having somebody that supports you while you're going through the human experience and uh, a human experience in transition um we know how important that is but we also know how important it is to see people who are living their authentic selves and how um you know 
people who are living their authentic self can be beacons of light. So can you tell me who are some of who were um, before you transition and even now, um, particularly before and tell me what's going on um, now, who are some of um, people who were beacons of light, trans masculine representation that you saw um, coming out that really gave you, may not necessarily be a blueprint, but gave you a light at the end of the tunnel saying, ooh, this is, I can be who I am because this person is being who they are. Can you tell me, you know, some of those people and why? Honestly, I, I remember still the first time I saw another Black trans man. <laughs> um, I was a senior in college and there was a blurb about Kyler Brodus in the Advocate magazine. Um, and when I saw that, I, I, my friend actually showed me and was like, look, there's a black trans guy. <laughs> and um, I was, I, I started, I Googled him. I started Googling him, everything about him. I wanted to know exactly who he was. I wanted to meet him. Um, and Hey, Kyler. Um, I love Kyler. Kyler listens to the show. Hey. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a huge inspiration for me. I, I had never seen anybody like me. Um, I had only met a few white trans guys at that point. Um, and their experience was so different than mine, you know, um, it just, it wasn't the same. So when I went to creating change for the first time, um, I met Kyler and he introduced me to a room and it was just a regular hotel room and I opened the door and it was nothing but black trans men. And I was like, oh my God, I was, I was so taken aback. I was like 22 years old, I think. Um, and it just it changed my life. It literally changed my life. I've met my best friend there. Um, we're still friends to this day, Celine Butler. Um, and we just had, you know, it, it gave me a community. It instantly gave me a community. I'm still friends with a lot of the guys that were in that room. That was almost 12 years ago. Um, and, uh, but those guys that were in that room, Celine and Enzi and Asher, um, there were, I think Ovid was there. There was just a number of people. Um, later, you know, probably later on that year, I started seeing Courtney, uh, Ryan Ziegler's work. And um, Courtney and I became friends. Dr. And, Courtney Ryan Ziegler. Yes, 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 yes. Dr. Courtney Ryan Ziegler. Got to say the doctor. Um, he, he became a huge inspiration to me as well. Um, and honestly, I think... I, if I'm recalling correctly, it was probably a series of conversations with him and a few other guys because we people were doing phone calls weekly and doing meetups online. And um, a lot of us were virtual before COVID, right? So, you know, a lot of the conversations that we were having, posting in groups and things, um, it just started to give me an idea of like, you know, yeah, it's okay if I don't refer to my past self as a man or as a boy, you know, it's okay for me to say, these things it's okay for me to um want to have longer hair and, you know um because at that point i think i had shaved my head i was bald for a number of years uh, but seeing a few guys that had longer hair that just gave me like okay yeah i do miss my hair and i do want it back you know um so i've had i, I think there are probably some guys that are close to me now and in, in the current time um there's a lot of young guys that are inspiring me um rashad xavier brown um dexter davis um, those are two people that came to my mind immediately. Um, but even elders like Charlie, like Van, 
Um, there's just a, a number of people who I'm surrounded by. And since I've moved to Virginia, I just have a really good network of other black trans men. Um, and a lot of the work we're talking about and that we're not just talking about, but doing is about holding each other accountable, is about healing with each other. Uh, even yesterday, that road trip to go see Charlie, that was our conversation. It was like, how do we hold ourselves accountable? For me, I think my very, it was right. We met at, um, at the event, there was an event that was a year before that was a trans mm. summit that um, Bishop Ross had put on and they flew me in to facilitate a, um, to facilitate some type of event with them, something, you know, I was facilitating something them at that yes, event, yes. but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but be- before we had an event before that and I was sitting in, um, I was in a, we were in the hotel room and I was sitting in, this was like 2010. I was in, you know how like there's the ballrooms of a hotel room and then right there's hallways right outside of the ballroom. So I was standing there and I was talking to a gay guy and I was talking to another guy and we were sitting there and we were talking and we were talking about dating. And one of them asked me, have, you know, do I date trans men? And I was like, oh, no, 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 I only date real men. Mm. Right. And so I was like, and so I'm sitting there, I just go on with the conversation. And the one guy was like, what do you mean by that? And I was like, <laughs> oh, you know, real men. <laughs> I'm just doubling, ignorantly doubling down, child. <laughs> Not even knowing what's going on. Just, it, just dumb, my little, little self. And so he was like, hmm. So you don't think trans men are real men? Hmm. Oh, you know what I mean. He was like, no, I don't know what you mean. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, well, what do you, what? I, I don't know what to say. He was like, so somebody who dates you, you wouldn't want them to invalidate your womanhood by saying that you're not a real woman. As if that's a real woman and you're not a real woman. And that doesn't make sense. <laughs> he was like, mm-hmm. and I don't know what happened, but it made so much motherfucking sense that I don't understand why it didn't make sense before. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so yeah. that was the illustrious, amazing, wise Lewis Mitchell. And mm. so Lewis, that was the first time that I came in direct contact with a trans guy no, because I literally didn't know that he was a trans guy. I thought that I was talking to two gay boys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. he just he just checked me in the most loving, direct way. <laughs> and it really <laughs> sounds like lesson. Lewis. It really was a lesson on how I thought about trans guys and how I thought about transness in general and how um you know, how, how kind of like erased they were in my mind. And I wasn't thinking about um, their perspective in regards mm-hmm. to dating, in regards to, um, you know, anything like that. So my first trans person that I met um, that I, that, that was, I, that identified as trans was um, Lewis Mitchell. Years before this, when I was in um, high school, I met at the time, they identified as a girl. Their name was Shauna. 
but they were a little bit more masculine of center. And so Shauna was a very super, super masculine lesbian at the time. But over the time of our year or two of knowing each other, so I had multiple cliques that I hung with. I hung out with a crew, a crew of lesbians and a crew <laughs> of like butch queens and trans women. And they were mm-hmm. they were separate. And so um I had my own apartment. So a lot of the lesbians who lived with their parents would come over to my house to smoke because we all smoked. And mm-hmm. so um when I met Shauna. Shauna would be, was so masculine and anti-me. Like Shauna wouldn't want me to come over her house. Shauna wouldn't, Shauna would only want the lesbians to come over her house. Don't bring the trans, that trans person. And Mm. so it was real. She was really anti-me. But over like a two year span, a period of time, something started to shift in Shauna. She gained a little bit of weight, just a little bit. And she started to grow a beard. And so, and and her voice started to shift down. Mm -hmm. And so me being a trans woman, motherfucker, you not fooling me. (laughs) 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 Like, this ain't normal. And Uh not to the, do have I seen women with beards, a little bit absolutely. But what's happening with you isn't normal. And so- she started at the time in the beginning, like I said, I, I met I met her as a she and I, she identified as a she at the time. But then over a two year period, she started she started to correct us and say, yo, I want you to start calling me Sean. Yo, I want you to start calling me he. I don't want you to call me she no more. I don't want you to call me Sean no more. I want you to call me Sean. And da da So we start calling him Sean. And. And in that moment, Sean started to treat me way better than they used to treat me. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, and at the time, because I think because of the shittiness of how Sean, how he was treating people who were trans prior to transition, there was a certain level of shame around identifying with transness and so now that i'm older and i met him as an older person they identify Mm -hmm. as a trans man and they are very very stealth (laughs) and so they are living their life as a stealth man with a wife and all that kind of stuff but we i saw him in recent time probably like maybe like five years ago and he apologized to me because he recognized that um, he used to treat me so shitty about being trans. But I think it was a mm-hmm. it was an internal thing where I he, he was almost jealous of and and I'm not saying I think this. This is something he told me um, mm-hmm. that he was a little bit jealous of the freedom that I had to just say fuck it and transition as early as I did. And he didn't have that freedom at the time when he actually did because he lived in his own apartment. Uh, when he was a when he was a lesbian and he had the freedom but he didn't have the courage and so he was kind of mm-hmm. jealous of that and didn't um and didn't know how to engage with it so i'm seeing that kind of transition and that is actually and I, I like to acknowledge that that is actually the first trans person i just saw them going through the process and mm-hmm. that is actually the first trans person trans masculine person that i actually met 
in my lifetime. So I like to acknowledge Sean and thank him for that experience because it, you know, it, it, it taught me a lot, even though they were shitty, it taught me that, you know, sometimes people aren't ready. And sometimes when they get ready, they have the courage and the um, integrity to come and apologize when they do shitty shit. And, yeah. you know, so that was my first experience. So these were amazing beacons of light for me. And I want to thank you for sharing yours. And Absolutely. I want to thank, thank you for being on the show. Can you tell people where they can find you? Yeah, they can find me on Instagram, Black Trans Genius. Um, I'm on Facebook, Michael David Battle. Um, and Garden of Peace is also on Facebook. And we have a website, gardenofpeaceproject.org. Do you have any projects coming up with Garden Peace? So we actually, we have a couple things coming up. We just closed the Healing Artist Residency application. So we're going to be going through those applications. Wait, hold on. Can, can Marcia's play apply for this residency? <laughs> yeah, so we we have resident absolutely. So I will definitely make sure that I, I share with you when we have things going on, um, and you can sign up on the website to subscribe. I, I don't we don't send that much stuff out. We only send things out when there's applications or we have a retreat. So um, we have a healing artist residency. Um, we also have a transformative artist residency, which, to my knowledge, is the only residency in the country that is designed for trans people specifically, um, and we do that in November during trans awareness month um yeah so um we but coming up we have a healing retreat for black trans men and trans masculine folks at the end of june um and then we'll be doing a reading um which will be five black trans men um doing going through some healing workshops for five weeks together and then doing a reading Yes. Well, thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed this conversation. We have been kind of working on getting you on the show and, <laughs> you know, it has worked out the way it worked out and I love it. This is, this has been amazing. And yes. thank you so much for doing this for me. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited. I'm really grateful to have this space with you after such a long time. It's been such a long time. Um, and just grateful to see your growth. Um, for real, seriously, you're doing great. Thank you, darling. All right, y'all. Make sure you like this, share it, and, you know, I will see y'all next week. Have a wonderful day. All right, peace.